Hello and welcome to The Case Files. I'm Kate Jabot and over the course of this podcast series, I'll be bringing you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. In this episode, we'll hear how international politics can get in the way of justice. The hatred was intense. The intensity of it, two murderers have used that diplomatic situation to their advantage. We'll investigate how a tragedy on a holiday island tore one family's life apart. Not getting justice. I don't feel very grieved. I don't feel that any of us are the same people that we were. There's always something there that reminds you. And we'll discover how criminals are crossing borders, using politics to get away with murder. It offends everybody's sense of justice that somebody can kill somebody and then just get away literally scot-free. It's something you might hardly give a second thought to as you travel abroad on holiday. You get your passport out and you're waved across by a guard. Or you might just drive over an anonymous white line. But that short journey across a border, those few steps means entering a different jurisdiction, a place with different laws, different politics. Do you ever have a moment of doubt and think, what if something happens once I cross that line? Today's case file is about one particular line on a map, a border dividing an island in two. We used to go to Menorca a lot, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. And... um, it's lovely because we used to hire a car and go round to all the different beaches. It's a story about international diplomacy involving the most senior British politicians. The kids would snorkel and jump off little rocks. and Which has left one family caught in the middle of an international dispute. We've got a picture somewhere and there's me and Wesley, which is George's elder brother. Yeah. Blonde hair, blue eyes... And there's George, who's dark, with the dark eyes, on the rock with us, but he looks like a native swam up and sat on the rock next to us. It's just, you know... As their young family are growing up, it's a busy time for Helen and Martin Lowe, keeping tabs on the five kids running round the house, particularly their son George, a bit of a live wire. Third child out of five, always something going on. Always playing about, always (laughs) playing tricks. It was just... Perfect, really. Got fields at the back of us and they were screaming for me. And as I went out there, George was sort of only about 10 foot away from chasing a combine harvester. (laughs) He was just crazy, really. (laughs) I think he's the only one who looks like me out of the family. All the rest are blonde, blue eyes. Of course, he's dark. When I was here, I was dark. Looking back, it's hard to pinpoint exact moments where people's characters are formed. Football club. That's it, yeah. He used to do kickboxing. All the competing influences of family and friends, laying out different paths, different possibilities. Lots of different groups of friends. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's sort of... Uh, Helen, how did it all start, his interest in going to Cyprus? I don't really know, to be honest. He just came to us one day and said... Uh, this is what he wants to do. He wants to go over to Cyprus and do a season over there. And it's a really difficult feeling because half of you thinks, yeah, that would be really nice for an experience. 
And then, of course, you worry about your children when they do things like this. I was sort of like 50-50. Martin was like, yeah, you know, go for it. He booked it all up and we took him up to Gatwick. The journey from Dartford up to Gatwick isn't far, but it's long enough to think about what might lie ahead. And for George Lowe, there's a lot to look forward to. It was just after George's 19th birthday that he went to work out there, a break before starting his career as an estate agent. We didn't know when he was coming back, he wouldn't tell us, but we was in bed and uh, it was probably about one, two o'clock in the morning and he come and surprised us, didn't he? <laughs> Standing there staring at us over the bed. It's, <laughs> it was quite funny, but yeah. So he absolutely loved it. He came back, done a few jobs to save up some money. Blue water, yeah. And then he went and done the second season. I thought I'd go out and surprise him. So um, I took a, a week off from work and flew out there. I found out where he was working, down the Iron Apple Strip. And I could see he was outside this nightclub and I crept behind him and I said, hello, George. I said, what are you doing out here? And he's turned around and said, Dad, <laughs> what the hell are you doing out here? <laughs> so I spent a week with him in Ionapa. And it was, his, it was his third trip for a holiday in Cyprus where this awful thing happened. How was he feeling about the holiday? Oh, excited, yeah. His friend Kevin would be his birthday while they were over there. So they went to celebrate his birthday and then this happened. Martin and our youngest son, Oliver, had gone to a family party. I was in bed probably about half past three and I woke up with Wesley calling me and I sort of come to and so he's calling me, Mum, can you come down? And I was like, why? What's wrong? And he went, Mum, just come down. And my brain wasn't working. I'd just woken up and I was like, well, why? What's wrong? And he went, Mum, can you just come down? It's George. So I jumped out of bed and run down the stairs and um, I said, what's wrong? I said, it, it, George is OK, isn't he? And he said, no, Mum, he's not. He's been stabbed. And I said, oh, but he's OK, isn't he? And he went, no, Mum, he's not. He's, he's dead. He's died. And it was just, I called him a liar. I said, no, he isn't. You're lying. He can't be, you know, and all these Thoughts run around in your head thinking, our son can't be dead. He's on holiday. I can't remember a lot of the evening, but I, um, Wesley said I was outside. In my mind, I just wanted to be with him and try and help him. He got me inside. We tried to ring Martin, but um, Martin is hard of hearing, so didn't understand what we were saying. So we decided we, that we'd have to drive up there. Were you then sort of getting the family back together to, to tell them all the news? Well, our eldest daughter, Laura, she was on holiday in Gran Canaria. She just broke down, screamed on the on the phone. Our other daughter, um, Millie, she was staying at her boyfriend's house. So we went to pick her up and... Obviously didn't want to tell her there and then. So in the car all the way home, she's saying, what's happened? Have I done something wrong? You're frightening me now. Please tell me what's happened. And when we got in, obviously told her and she just... I've never heard such a scream. scream. <sighs> yeah. 
it's really chilling. Yeah. You know, it's it's very hard because those thoughts repeat on you and, and they do. And it, it, it's, yeah. it's stuff you don't want to remember, but you, you know, you do remember it because they were the last minutes of everything. I was, it was just shock, total disbelief. I just didn't believe it. Went outside and broke down and uh, Helen come out, comfort me and uh, everything's just numb. Just couldn't take nothing in. Yeah. I still can't accept it now. really can't. Helen, can you tell me what you understand about what happened to him? Well... <laughs> Somebody told me that they do a thing over there called slaying. People will be in the street and then you'll see them run towards you, punch you. A little bit like what they used to do over here, like the happy slapping or whatever they called it. So they call it slaying. They punch you, try and knock you out and then run off. So because George had done the two seasons over there, he he knew about this and he saw them looking at Ben and sort of pushed Ben out of the way so that he'd never got hit and pushed the man, whichever one it was, away. They run off and then within sort of 10 minutes, they'd come back with knives and found George and Ben in the crowd. There was hundreds of people there and it amazes me to think that they've actually found Ben and George and done what they've done. Yeah. There must have been some kind of... Um, struggle. Struggle because Ben was stabbed five times in his back. They stabbed George in the neck. Apparently he chased after them but was bleeding out, so he collapsed on the floor. And, and how has Ben been all right? Has he recovered okay? Thankfully he's recovered well, yeah, yeah physically. It's hard to imagine yourself in Martin and Helen's situation, in the midst of your grief, getting on a plane to go to a holiday resort to investigate what happened to your son. It was just numbness. It was horrific. It's going out there. It's just still, still trying to process everything. I cried all the way. Yeah. I cried all the way there, and all I kept thinking was, people are going to be thinking that I'm scared of flying, and they don't yeah. know the real reason. Yeah. You've got people sitting on the plane that are excited about going on holiday and we were on there because we were going over because our son had been murdered. I mean, I suppose you must have been stunned by what, what was happening. You feel like everyone's looking at you because... And you think, well, have they seen it in the paper? Does, everybody must know who we are. It was quite a frightening experience. Yeah. We was met by the... Um... British Commonwealth Office to officials at uh, the airport. They took us through customs, so we just bypassed everyone. Because they said that they thought that um, there might be a lot of media there interested in the case. That was a quite nervous feeling. Then they took us to the hotel. Middle of August. Yeah. It was, you know, buzzing over there with people excited and, you know, took us through the back ways. Away from the busy streets, the bars and hotels, Helen and Martin prepared themselves to go to the funeral care home. We got there on the Tuesday and we were advised not to see him straight away because he was still in the hospital 
and he wouldn't have, their words looked very nice. So we waited till the Friday. One of the commissioners came and picked us up and took us, parked up and my legs just turned to jelly. It was just, but we walked in there and um, it was very peaceful, almost, almost a beautiful experience. He was just laying there and it looked like he was asleep. He looked, he just looked like our George asleep and um, we wasn't particularly prepared for him he was very padded out on the chest and you know and you don't ever think of things like that but um, I'm I'm glad they left us alone we could spend that last sort of time with him Um, spoke to him and just talking to him you know touching his Face, kissing uh, him, kiss, come kiss her. Yeah, it's um, it's nice, beautiful, but it's obviously not how we'd want to see him. Yeah. We saw the police over there. Yeah. We went to the high commissioner's house and had tea with him and spoke to him about it. Between meetings with officials, Helena Martin felt the need to escape and connect with the places where George had spent time. We knew that a couple of restaurants out there that George liked to go to, so we sort of went to there. Yeah. We was recommended a beach away from crowds. It was beautiful, and it had a church up on the cliff, and we went into the church... We left a little note hoping that they would pray for George. There's a tree as well that George liked. Very, very old tree. Everyone that went over to see him, he used to take and show them the tree. So some of George's friends took us, you know, you sort of felt very close to him there. People had put ribbons in the tree and photos of George in the tree and, you know, it was all decorated. Yeah. It's beautiful. As they were getting ready to leave the island, the work they'd done with the police and the politicians paid off. Martin and Helen had lost their son, but thankfully the people believed to have murdered him had been caught. We was at the airport and we got a phone call to say two suspects had been caught. It's surprising how happy and elated you can feel knowing that they've been caught and you think, yes, that's it, you know, they get to serve their time in prison for what they've actually done. And, you know, no, it doesn't bring George back. We know that, but it does help, you know. They shouldn't be able to be free and live their lives how they want to live their lives. But they were about to discover that politics and that border was to play a huge part in their lives. Because, despite the suspects having been arrested, that was in northern Cyprus, the Turkish side, and the crime had happened in the south. In the next breath, they're on the northern side and they won't extradite them back. We can't do anything about it because they're released again. And, you know, we saw their pictures in the paper. It just, you look at them, it makes you feel sick. They're giving it to you in one, one hand and taking it with the other. Yeah. It was a terrible shock. But at this point, on the phone in the airport, Martin and Helen would never have believed what lay ahead of them 
It would be a full two years before they would fly back to Cyprus to learn what had happened to their son. Years learning about international diplomacy and years knowing the people who murdered their child were still out there. Underneath the booming tourist industry, the tension between its Greek and Turkish inhabitants has dominated Cyprus in modern times. There's a line, the Green Line, which has split the island coast to coast since 1974. The north run by a Turkish Cypriot government and the south run by the internationally recognised government led by the Greek Cypriots. They were actually imprisoned by the military police for trespass and illegal entry into northern Cyprus. They were reluctant to do anything because their argument was that they don't have any evidence. The South had not provided them with any evidence against these two suspects. And the South wouldn't provide the evidence because to do so would be to recognise the existence of the North and they won't do that. At least one of the murderers has come back again to southern Cyprus and has again been imprisoned and yet they still would not do anything about extraditing that individual. Politicians are used to crossing borders, persuading people on the other side, but it was personal feeling which led Gareth Johnson, Helena Martin-Lowe's local MP, to try and help. I think like most people, I heard about it on the television, then subsequently found out that uh, George was from Dartford, uh, and so was Ben, Ben Barker. And I think it's instinctive for any, anybody to help in that situation. Um, I wanted to do all I could to try and make sure these people were behind bars. I, I went to their house in Darrance. The whole family were in shock and they'd just come back from Cyprus. And, you know, they were surrounded by this sort of whole wrath of condolence cards, tokens of, of love that were being shown to them. Yeah, you know, I'm a father myself. And there but for the grace of God go any one of us. This was a completely unprovoked attack. And... It offends everybody's sense of justice that somebody can kill somebody, attack another person, try to kill him too, and then just get away with murder, literally, scot-free. But unfortunately, Gareth knew from experience there would be a huge battle ahead if they were to get justice. It was quite obvious right from the beginning that this was going to be a diplomatic nightmare to try and deal with. I had a meeting with Boris Johnson, who was then the Foreign Secretary. How helpful was he? He, he was very good because he actually made sure that the Turkish ambassador and the ambassador for, for, for the Republic of Cyprus and the foreign affairs spokesman in northern Cyprus, they engaged with us fully. But a diplomatic maelstrom is the only way I can really describe it. And really, we were going around in circles because the Republic of Cyprus in the south doesn't recognise northern Cyprus. It sees it as an occupying force and therefore they won't actually deal with it. Turkey as well won't deport someone who's a Turkish national. One of the culprits is a Turkish national. The other one's Bulgarian. The Bulgarian was meant to be deported to Bulgaria, but the northern Cypriot authorities deported him to Bulgaria, but he absconded en route. Was your initial objective then to get the, the suspects brought back to the southern part, the, the Republic of Cyprus, so that they could then be investigated and put on trial potentially? Provided Helen and Martin were OK with it, we didn't mind them being tried anywhere where there would be an appropriate trial. But there's no extradition treaty that exists between the North and the South. There is a United Nations committee that's meant to arbitrate over disputes between the North and the South. That has very little, if any, teeth, as far as I can see. We had exhausted everything we could through the Foreign Office here. 
and decided, therefore, that the only real course of action now was to go to Cyprus to try and make some progress. But as Gareth travelled to Cyprus to try and persuade people to put politics aside for the sake of justice, he wasn't prepared for what awaited him. The strength of feeling over this, the, the bitterness that still exists there. I, I met with the Attorney General's office and around the table were three people who hadn't, wouldn't have even been born when the war took place there. And yet they almost couldn't use the term Northern Cyprus without spitting. It was absolute, the, the hatred was intense. And in, in many ways, it's, it's too easy for us to sneer at this because, you know, we've had our experiences in Northern Ireland where there's been similar hatred. And so I'm not saying that we're above all of that. The intensity of it in Cyprus was something I'd never experienced. As a politician, as someone trying to resolve a situation, what did you do? The argument I kept making to both of the North and South authorities was that the South do not want tourists being killed uh, and the murderers getting away with it. They don't want to be known for that. And neither does the North want to become a dumping ground for people escaping crimes that they've committed, serious crimes they've committed. And so you would think it would be in the interests of both North and South Cyprus to resolve these problems. And yet they seem far more interested in holding their line over their positions against each other. Two murderers have used that diplomatic situation to their advantage to get away with murder, quite literally. And in the midst of all this, the Green Line, stretching coast to coast. You can't even refer to it as a border without people getting upset because it's not a border, it's a Green Line. There's a big flag, the Turkish flag is emblazoned on the mountains to face the Greek Cypriots as a way of sort of saying, this is ours, not yours. And but what, I, what I find quite uh, puzzling about this whole thing is that the, these suspects were able to flee. There are apparently locations along the border which locals know of where it's quite easy to get across. And one of the uh, murderers knows very well how to do it. And I have some information that he's actually crossed from north to south and back hundreds of times. How frustrating is this for you? Uh, it, it, it's incredibly frustrating, but not as frustrating as it is for Martin and for Helen and the families of Ben Barker as well. My frustrations pale into insignificance. Despite the efforts of politicians and diplomats, progress was painfully slow, especially for George's parents. Two years would pass before they were able to travel for an inquest in Cyprus. And during that time, life was very different. It's very hard because those thoughts repeat on you and yeah. it's stuff you don't want to remember, but you, you know, you do remember it because they were the last minutes of everything. And it's just, it's got worse, it's got worse. Because I miss him so much, not getting justice. Um, it's just, I don't feel very grieved. You can't grieve. We're always trying our hardest to keep the ball rolling, to try and catch these murderers. The Cypriot inquest into George Lowe's death was held in 2018 and Helen and Martin discovered more about what happened that night two years before. The Cypriot one was awful. Yeah. We don't understand the language. We had an interpreter, but she had to be so quiet in the courtroom 
and she had an accent and Martin's hard of hearing as well. So it was a very, very struggle to understand what she was saying and for Martin to hear her. We was very disappointed because we thought that we would get an outcome when we was there and we didn't. The judge said, oh, she's going to take all the evidence away, then come back with a verdict. And that was the end of November 2018. And uh, it was literally nearly two years later yeah. that we got the result. And the result said what? The result said unlawful, unlawful killing. Yeah, and that's when we found out that he had um, lots of lacerations on his chest and back. And his back in the struggle with the attacker. Once the Cypriot inquest had finally been held, an inquest could be held in the UK. For the Lowe family, it was yet another anxious moment. It was harrowing going through it all, listening to uh, what happened. It was, was harrowing. They had um, a lot of um, witness statements read out and we'd never heard them before. So one of the bits for me was when um, they said that uh, George had run after the suspect and stopped and pulled the knife out and then just dropped to the floor. You know, we didn't know those those no. um, things, did we? So that was very hard to hear. Yeah, that, that for me, that was, that was the hardest thing to hear. The la- actual last moments of his life. Just try to imagine how he was feeling. And... Ben had told us that um, on the night that it happened, they were put into the ambulance together and he said he reached over and and touched George. I, I found it really touching. But he, he leaned over and he said to George, told him that he loved him, he said, and his eyes just rolled. It was at this second inquest that lawyers from Slater and Gordon were able to assist the family. Nicola Rostron has been working with Martin and Helen. It's a case that just pulls at the heartstring from, from day one. It's terrible and your heart just goes out to the family. It really, really does. Initially, when we first met Helen and Martin, we liaised directly with a Cypriot lawyer to try to understand some facts, to try and get basic information for them. That's what they wanted. They wanted answers. We liaised with the Cypriot police to try and find information as to what had happened and also then try to obtain a copy of the police report. We could then provide copies of the same to the coroner here in England and that that information was provided, that was put on the file and that's something that the coroner could then take into consideration at the inquest last last year. The other thing that we did do is liaise um, closely with a body called Victim Support, an independent charity. They provided support and, again, emotional support to the family uh, in the form of counselling and just being there for somebody to turn to. But despite the support, legal options were limited. It's been complicated by the fact that, of course, the perpetrators of the the terrible crime have have not only absconded, but it's happened in Cyprus. There's a body here in England called the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority, and they run a scheme often referred to as the 2012 scheme. And that scheme allows individuals who have been involved in um, terrible crime such, such as this to bring a claim um, if the perpetrator has absconded. There is a cause of action against the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority. 
But the problem here is there's quite tight rules with that scheme that the CICA operates and the, the crime has to be committed within the relevant place and the relevant place tends to be Great Britain. There can be some exceptions, but they didn't apply here. And so it meant that we were not able to bring a claim against the CICA. Okay. Is there any prospect of any further action, like perhaps a civil claim? Here in England, unfortunately, we were not able to bring a civil claim, primarily because of the fact that um, it's happened out in Cyprus. And the, the, the two individuals have not been able to be located. They've absconded. If it were possible, what, what can you get out of a civil claim? How, how does it work? What we have been able to do is put the family in touch with a lawyer in Cyprus to make some investigations in Cyprus as to whether or not they have an equivalent in Cyprus of the CICA. From my discussions with the Cypriot lawyer, it does look positive. We, we believe that there is an equivalent. They might then feel that justice has been done to a certain extent if they can get some sort of damages for, for recognition as to what they've been through. Martin, can you just talk me through the kind of efforts you've gone to to try and get justice for your son? Was it... Um contact with the, the foreign office and I was ringing up every day and, and saying you know, has anything happened and they no, no you know, I mean Turkey won't even speak to them full stop Got our police, didn't we yeah. um, but it's not a lot they can do because it's another country and they can't go barging into, an, into another country telling them what to do. So unless they're invited into helping with the investigation, they can't actually help. Um, Having regular meetings with the Foreign yeah. Office, but it's just like a, a, a dead end every time because of Turkey's unwillingness to hand them over. I think it's come to a full stop there. When we went over to Cyprus, when it first happened and we saw the High Commissioner, he promised he would do everything he could do. Yeah. So, you know, you take people's words for it, don't you? So hopefully they're still trying their hardest over there. What kind of impact has this had on your family? A big impact. I don't feel that any of us are the same people that we were. No. It causes sort of a, like a mental health issue, really. Everybody feels down. You have good days, you have bad days. There's different things that come on the telly or you, you're here when you're in the car and the music comes on that reminds you of George. So there's always something there that reminds you. You're listening to The Case Files, the podcast which brings you the true life stories behind some of the UK's most fascinating legal cases, all told with unparalleled access to the people and lawyers closest to events. The story of George Lowe's killing is taking us into a world of international politics and the people who committed this terrible crime using international borders as a smokescreen to hide behind. These are people who are able to come and go across Cyprus from Turkey without any care in the world that they're going to be held to account for what they did. The, the cruelty of it, George had his life cut short in the most barbaric, cruel way possible. And what adds to that pain for both Helen and Martin is that not only have they lost their son, they haven't seen the people who took their son's life face justice. And that is cruelty on top of cruelty. 
For MP Gareth Johnson, this case has introduced him to other similar tragedies. You know, lots of people go to Cyprus in particular, some to the north on holidays. It's a lovely country. And you can see why people want to go there on holiday. And Brits go there in their thousands, normally speaking. And people need to be aware that if you go to southern Cyprus and a terrible crime is committed against you, and the people who commit that crime flee to the north, you are not going to see justice. It's not going to happen. And, and we know of other cases, very, very serious crimes that have been committed in similar circumstances. And the people have not been sent back to the south in order to face justice. And it works both ways as well. People who commit crimes in the north of Cyprus who flee to the south. And again, nothing is done. And, and British tourists need to be aware of this problem and make that a factor in their decision as to whether or not to go to Cyprus or, on holiday. Tragically, many British people are killed abroad every year. And as with Helen and Martin, grieving relatives are left wrestling with foreign systems, documents not available in English and considerable costs. All this at the most traumatic period in their lives. How do you get the body home? What happens about an inquest? Will there be a post-mortem? All these questions that suddenly you're having to deal with thousands of miles away in a country that doesn't speak much English, for example, and you can't get the answers because no one wants to talk about it or it's bad for tourism to talk about it or simply no one understands you. It's just unending. LBT is a charity that helps British people in crisis overseas. They deal with more than 200 suspicious deaths a year. Helena Martin received assistance from them in the aftermath of George's death. We've got a contact in every country around the world that can help us on the ground to get things done. Matthew Searle is the chief executive of LBT. He told me that a long wait for justice is sadly common. We do see some deaths overseas with suspicious causes that are still ongoing after 10 years. Uh, I'm afraid that's not unusual at all. What we often see is a flurry of activity when the media are very interested internationally. And then we go down the line of uh, a new jury needs to be appointed, so that'll be six months. And then they won't be hearing until after Christmas. And it just drags on and on and on. And international cases where there isn't a family in the country living there, paying taxes, demanding answers can often get put to the bottom of the pile. So we often see cases go on for, for many years. I don't think any government can ever do enough, and I don't think any charity can ever do enough, because these are situations where all a family wants is for it not to have happened and they want their loved one back again, and none of us can do that. But I'm, I'm sure the Foreign Office itself and everyone who works there would always say themselves they would like to do more. I mean, the, the, the diplomatic relationship that, that, that Britain has with any country certainly affects how we work on the front line trying to get stuff done, and that's been most apparent recently with Brexit. We're finding in some EU countries we now can't talk to people. What used to be a simple matter of phoning somebody and saying, hey, look, I need some help with this, we're now being told but we don't have a data agreement with the UK so we can't tell you about that. And that obviously is very, very difficult when you're working on a time-sensitive basis, particularly in cases of missing people where you need to locate that person before something awful happens. I'm hopeful that as everything is finally ratified and drawn up and agreed, that we'll be able to settle that down. But certainly Britain's place in the world does have an effect. It's now more than four years since George Lowe was killed and two years since the first inquest. For Helena Martin, it's been years wondering what happened that night, followed by more years of seeking justice. The reminders never go away. I drove him and Ben up to the airport and 
And that was the last time I saw him. It was like I dropped him off and um, gave him a hug and kiss and love you, son. So be safe and see you when you come back. That was it. And they always stay with me. Always. When um, George was born, George was born with two teeth at the bottom. Everyone wanted to see the baby with teeth, and um, <laughs> which was quite funny. He had his first um, dental appointment at five days old. Anyway, um, when um, this happened to George, Laura, our eldest daughter, was in Gran Canaria and she was pregnant. Well, she went on and had a, a little baby boy, Luca, and I was with her when she had him. When they brought him up and put him on her chest, I said, have a look, see if he's got any teeth. And he did. He had two teeth in exactly the same place as where George had his. You know, you just think, oh, it's like a little sign. It's, you know, you won't forget me because, yeah. you know, I'm going to do all these things to remind you. <laughs> and he has a daughter. Madison, yeah, she, um, yeah, Madison's four now. She is just the spitting image of, of George. She's got the dark hair, the the big brown eyes. She's just so very much like him. Cheekiness. Yeah. It's 13th of June, it's his birthday. Yeah. And he would have been 26. Yeah. But we had a we had a party for him. Well, a barbecue. Yeah, a family. Yeah, we had a family get together, had a party, raise a glass to George. Yeah, so, you know, we'll always do something like that. We're, yeah. you know, he won't ever, ever be forgotten. As time goes by, options narrow. It's something no lawyer ever wants to do, to tell the family they've been working with they can no longer help. Nicola Rostron remembers the call. It was a very difficult phone call to make. It's a phone call that I, I didn't want to have to make to, to tell Helen and Martin that essentially we'd reached the end of the road. I felt personally very disappointed and frustrated for them. I don't feel that they will ever be able to properly grieve un until they get the result that they want here. It it's wholly inadequate that, that we haven't been able to do more, but, but sometimes, as hard as it might sound, it's just simply not possible. But I know they're continuing to persevere, and I hope that they will be successful with their continued determination. What would have to happen for, for them actually to be able to make any headway? What kind of development could there potentially be that could make them feel that they actually do get justice, get the day in court for these people? Firstly, if the, the perpetrators could be sourced and located. And secondly, bringing a claim out in Cyprus through the Cypriot court might assist them in feeling that they've actually got somewhere and, and that they have been recognised for the, for the terrible crime that's been committed and the loss of their son. Well, we have um, information as to where at least one of the perpetrators is staying at the moment. What we're doing is pursuing that angle at the moment, and I don't think it would be right to go into the full details of all of that. But we're certainly not giving up on this. This is something that we will continue working with, with the High Commission in Southern Cyprus and with the Foreign Office. This is not going to go away. One of the hopes that we have, um, it's not the only one, but one of the hopes we have is that one of those two individuals at some stage will get overconfident and will leave Northern Cyprus or leave Turkey and go to a country where European arrest warrants apply. We believe at least one of them has travelled abroad already. 
and for some reason it didn't trigger the European arrest warrant, maybe because they were travelling on false documents, we just don't know. So their confidence is growing, if you like. But there are others out there who know where they are and don't like them and are passing information on. It does sound then from the movements of these people that maybe, maybe it's just a matter of time before they get caught. I believe so. I certainly have not given up hope and I know the families haven't given up hope either. We won't stop until we do. No, won't give up. He deserves that, you know. Yeah. He didn't deserve what happened to him. Mm. At 22 years old, it's nothing. I just think, you know, they, especially the younger suspects, if he goes on and has a family, and how would he feel? Do they not regret what they've done? You would think that the Turkish government would want them roaming the streets in Turkey. You'd think they wouldn't have locked up. You could go on holiday one day, you could be sitting next to one of them, you wouldn't know. Thanks again to Nicola Rostron, travel litigation lawyer at Slater & Gordon, Matthew Sell from LBT and Gareth Johnson MP for sharing their experience of this case. And thanks especially to Helen and Martin Lowe for telling their story. A large number of his friends went to the beach and spelt George's name out in tea lights and they sat there and spoke about George and they put the tea lights in the sea and let them float away gently. It was very peaceful. It was lovely. If you want to know more about this or other episodes of The Case Files, have a look at the website slatergordon.co.uk forward slash podcast or head over to our social media channels and search hashtag casefilespod and join the conversation. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.